Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Brookside Energy. Brookside Energy, one of the most exciting ASX-listed oil and gas companies, is about to capitalize on record-high oil and gas prices. With an existing solar production base and the first of over 20 planned new wells about to come on production, Brookside is about to join the ranks of top-tier Australian oil and gas producers. Brookside Energy, working with local communities to ensure sustainable growth and value creation through the safe and efficient development of energy assets. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here on the line with James Whelan, investment manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? Not so bad, Paul. How are you now? Just to note, too, uh, that the information contained within is general advice in nature and may not be suitable for you. And uh, that, uh, that's that's the admin out of the way, but uh, on with the show. Thanks, Paul. Uh, from Amsterdam, joining us is Ken Vexler, Managing Director at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm, uh, I'm well, Cogger. Sun's out. It's a, it's a nice sunny afternoon and looking forward to... Uh to the show. Yeah, uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Uh, our guest, uh, someone we, um, uh, I'm really delighted to uh, get on the show, a uh, really interesting uh, person, um, got uh, great um, uh, insights on uh, a growing and uh, increasingly important uh, aspects uh, of um, global markets. Uh, it's Ben Eifert, uh, managing uh, member and chief investment officer of QVR Advisory, joining us from San Francisco. Ben, thanks for coming on the web show. Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a uh, beautiful morning here in San Francisco area. Yeah, a be- beautiful free morning, uh, I imagine, um, as opposed to. Uh, where we are, um, where we're locked in our houses for what looks like another few weeks, um, but it's uh, it's great that we're doing the um, all the different time zones across uh, three different time zones, and they're all a long way from each other. So um, it's um, great that we can make this happen. Um, I just want to give our guests a bit of background on Ben. Um, but QB, um, Q, QVR is a um, quant-driven options and volatility strategy advisory firm. Uh, but uh, Ben has also got a uh, fascinating background. Um, uh, he was head of uh, quant research and, deriv- and a derivatives trader for the Wells uh, Fargo Proprietary Trading Desk, uh, which later became Overland Advisors. Uh, he's taught at the Masters in Financial and Engineering program uh, at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, and he started his career as an emerging markets macroeconomist at the World Bank, where uh, he would have been, uh, in that capacity, a great guest on the BIP show. Um, But he also holds, um, for his sins, a PhD in economics from UC Berkeley and a bachelor's in economics and international relations from Stanford. Uh, So um, a few qualifications going on there, Ben. Uh, um, Do you think you're at now the final stage of your career, or do you have another uh, bit ahead of you, do you think? 
<laughs> I, every time I try to take an extended vacation, I get uh, too quickly bored. So I think uh, I think we'll be doing this for a while. Excellent. And look, um, yeah, look, cer- certainly um, it's been, I, I imagine, a, um, an incredible uh, year uh, for you, particularly in your space. Um, the growth of options, trading products and retail markets has added some new and very interesting dynamics to the price action in U.S. equities. Um, growth of um, global tech stocks uh, over the past decade really means that um, all the world's major investment funds, including those in Australia, have some exposure uh, to this. Um, and some of the derivative trading products were, um, it seems, at least partly responsible for the uh, for the wild pr- price action we've seen in meme stocks. Uh, this year, um, notice, notice, notably uh, GameStop. But Ben, you've probably, uh, I'm sorry to do this to you, you've probably explained this more times than you care to think about. <laughs> um, but I'm going to ask you to do an encore um, and explain the role of the gamma squeeze and uh, options, uh, call options in what happened uh, with GameStop. Sure, absolutely. It's a it's a fun topic. So, I think if you, first of all, just think about what we have seen in terms of uh, option markets over the last couple of years. You've seen a huge pickup in the interest of individual investors and retail investors to use options and especially short term call options to express their views and speculate on on stocks. And especially technology stocks and meme stocks. So that's a change from from the old days. Retail investors weren't very involved in options for most of the last 20 years since the tech bust. So why did they do that? Well, first of all, when you buy a short-term call option to get exposure to a company, uh, it gives a, an investor a lot of synthetic leverage, which again is a, is a double-edged sword. But people like leverage because if their trades work, they make a bunch of money. Um, and because they're buying an option, it's non-recourse leverage, right? So they buy a, buy a call option for a dollar, and if the stock goes up a whole lot, they might make 10, 10x or 100x their money. But if the stock goes down or just doesn't go up enough, they just lose the, the premium that they posted, right? So it creates asymmetry. Now, how does that relate to short squeezes? Well, if you have a large amount of investors buying short-term upside call options on a stock like GameStop, you have to think about where options come from in a sense and how they're manufactured, right? So with retail investors, when they go and buy those options, they're not buying them in some sense just from some other retail investor or some institutional investor who happens to want to sell an option at the exact same time. What they're doing is they're buying those options from market makers uh, and a market maker is hedging the other side of that option. So a market maker who sells a one week, 10% out of the money call to a retail investor is going to go and buy a certain amount of the stock to hedge that exposure. And they're going to dynamically manage the size of that hedge, depending on how far out of the money the option is, how much time there is left to expiration, effectively managing to what the probability that that option ends up in the money is. And so as a result, when retail investors come out and buy a whole lot of call options first of all dealers and market makers are buying a bunch of stock to hedge those positions that they're selling 
so that of course creates some price pressure upward on the on the stock the same way that buying a stock does except with greater leverage the next thing that happens is if that stock is rallying and continuing to rally on that heavy buying pressure the dynamic hedging that market makers have to do that upside call option that might have been what derivatives investors would call say a 10 delta call option only a 10 percent chance that the stock is going to rise enough to, to allow that option to expire into the money that 10 delta call option might become a 20 delta and then a 30 delta and a 40 delta call option where it, the stock is rallying towards the strike price it's becoming more and more likely that that uh, that the stock will end up above that call strike and dealers will be buying more and more and more stock to hedge the sensitivity of that call option to the stock price. And that's a virtuous cycle of, of sorts, right? Because and the, because investors use a bunch of leverage, they buy a bunch of options, they push the stock higher, dealers rehedge buying more of the stock, continuing to push it higher, and you get this, this virtuous feedback effect that's uh, that has squeeze-like dynamics. And certainly in the case of GameStop and some others, that probably interacts with short squeeze dynamics as well, right? Where you had concentrated short positioning by some large investors who were losing more and more money as the stock was rallying and being forced to cover. And so the combination of those those effects are, are really quite powerful. Uh, and uh, that must have been absolutely terrifying for some of those um, market makers um, watching the price action because uh, it was... Um, on some days, uh, it was moving, you know, 40, 50%, um, uh, in, and, and there were some days where uh, there was one day, I think it doubled. Um, so the, the, the pressure must've been immense, uh, on those, uh, on those market makers. Were you, um, were you trying to help some of those guys, um, manage that? Or were you just watching? Uh, certainly, from the certainly not in any direct sense, but we talk to uh, our friends on that side of the business uh, quite a lot. And I would say, yeah, it was certainly an exciting ride. Um, generally speaking, uh, the market makers did pretty well through that GME episode and more recently through the AMC episodes. Um, think of the, the really the origin of this big wave of retail option trading was with Tesla in late 2019 and early 2020, Tesla in some sense was the original meme stock. Um, dealers initially got hurt quite badly by Tesla because at the time this was really a new phenomenon and <clears throat> market makers were still calibrated in a sense to play the game of the last 15 plus years, which was if a bunch of retail investors show up and are all doing the same thing during some very short period of time you sell aggressively to them because they're going to go away and you're just going to have collected a lot of the asset spread and that's a great trade right that but what it turned out was that actually the sizes were really big and very persistent right and the flow kept coming and people kept lifting more calls and more calls and more calls and moving tesla a lot market makers eventually adapted to that right and un came to understand the nature of this flow where it was coming from got much better at uh, forecasting that flow at, at thinking about how to hedge it about how to accumulate inventory in longer term options as these moves were starting to happen so that they could supply shorter term options leaning their delta hedges in the right way and 
So as a result, it was certainly a very volatile period for market makers during uh, the GME squeeze, for example. Um, but by and large, they did they did all right. They did pretty well, and I think that was evidenced uh, amazingly enough. I mean, I, I remember taking some screenshots at the time. You know, on days where GME was up. 40 or 50 percent to your point and implied volatility on short-term gme options was 800 um, markets were being made if you pulled up the, the the exchange prices and the nbbo you know you would see options being made a hundred dollars bid at a hundred dollars and fifty cents offered like incredibly tight markets on a product that was just that was moving like faster than anything anybody's ever experienced, right? And that's what that's not what a market looks like when the market maker is losing money, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and can can you just explain just briefly, like how just a high level, how that hedging, um, what what the hedging strategies tend to be um, for those market makers? Sure. So, I mean, first the the simplistic, uh, just basic delta hedging, right? So if uh, a market maker will always manage a delta neutral portfolio. So market makers don't want to have any exposure to directional move. Okay, the stock goes up or the stock goes down. They don't have any view on the stock. That's not their job, and that's not what they're good at. Right? And so what their market makers are going to aggregate up all of the directional exposure or all of the delta across all the different positions they have in options on a particular stock, and they're going to hedge the net the net exposure there with with equities and that they're also going to think very carefully about how that exposure how that directional exposure that they have will change as different things happen right so as the stock goes up as the stock goes down as time passes as volatility rises or falls <clears throat> and they, they will dynamically hedge they'll adjust the shares position they hold against those options as those different things happen in order to maintain that very low to zero uh, directional exposure to the stock. Now, the um, they you know, taking that a step further, when there are very large and persistent flows, right? If there's a flow in the marketplace that's temporary, where there's some buyers coming in to buy General Electric options, but there's other, it's not expected to be. It's a, a long-lasting phenomenon. Market makers might be happy to temporarily get net short options hedged with stock because they expect that there's going to be a buyer soon who comes in and, and takes the other side. In the case of something like GME or AMC, dealers are thinking very explicitly about how to hedge not just the directional exposure of the stock, but also the volatility risk or the optionality that they get put into when they get very short lots of options, right? Because if you're short a bunch of options, if there's a very big unexpected move in the stock that's very large relative to the implied volatility or the price of optionality that the market's faking in, you're going to lose money. And so dealers are also going to be thinking about, okay, this is a big flow, so I need to be, where can I buy options? Uh, who's supplying options somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the maturity and, and, uh, and skew curve that I can use to at least partially offset the option risk? In the short-term options that I'm getting bought, that I'm getting lifted on from retail, and so there, the answer is often that there are large institutional holders of some of the stock um, that that are willing to overwrite calls, for example, maybe two or three months out of the curve instead of those front week 
or maybe there are um, maybe there are hedgers that own some long dated options that are willing to sell them out because they're going to sell the stock because it's rallied so much. And so dealers are going to go out and try to source that risk to hedge some of the volatility exposure that they're going to get. And so there's a, um, a an overall portfolio management problem that dealers are trying to solve in terms of the nature of the risk of, of the soup of all the options that they hold as well. Mm. And and um, just yeah. well, my last question is, this, I'm fascinated by it, but uh, do they use typically software to sort of see the uh, universe of their own positioning options um, or positioning scenarios? Or um, is it something that needs to be sort of figured out uh, on the fly? So, you know, generally speaking, uh, I think there was a lot of figuring it out on the fly, for example, back in those early Tesla days in late 2019, right, where dealers existing models of market behavior and flow in in a single name were, were very clearly wrong and they were losing a lot of money. But I think over generally in steady state, um, these are very large, sophisticated organizations that have a lot of resources invested in real-time modeling and, indi- and indications of when flow is coming, where it's coming from, in what in what range of securities, and what to do to position for that flow and to make sure that that flow is hedged. So generally speaking, um, you know, in, in steady state, in a sense, the, uh, these folks are are have a pretty good plan, have a pretty good infrastructure for running it, and are you know adapting to market conditions as, as they go. But um, but they have quite good resources in place to, to manage this type of risk. Mm. Um, just before we move on, a note from our sponsor. Uh, this episode of The BIP Show is brought to you by Brookside Energy, an exciting ESG-focused ASX-listed oil and gas company. Strong high oil and gas prices, an existing solid production base, and the first of over 20 planned wells about to come on production make Brookside Energy a compelling story. Uh, so, um, Ben, um, just want to ask, just go back in time a little bit, and maybe um, if you can give us a picture of the sort of growth of, uh, of derivatives in U.S. markets. You've been at the uh, front end of this uh, through through your career. Um, how does it, how does where we are now compare to when you were at, say, Wells Fargo in terms of asset classes and the type of products, etc.? Yeah, great question. So we've seen quite a lot of growth, but also very important changes in composition and the nature of derivatives markets over the last, call it 15 years. So if you were to rewind back to the mid 2000s and running into the credit crisis, derivatives markets were in many ways like the wild west. There was, there was huge size and volume and risk traded primarily bilaterally between different large large organizations. So on ISDA, between banks and hedge funds and asset managers and insurance companies. Uh, the, The banks were very different beasts than they are now. They were large, aggressive, risk taking organizations. They facilitated markets very aggressively. And they also took very large positions themselves. Uh, from the perspective of a hedge fund, you know, you could transact in very large size in complex products very quickly at mid-market because you could comp out a dozen banks and they would people would show up to make aggressive markets. The, the product set 
was more was more complex in some sense than what dominates the markets today because there was a again the focus was over the counter derivatives and one of the features of over the counter is as much customization as you want in a sense right so there were this was the heyday of of complex barrier options and variant swaps and iterations on variant swaps and covariant swaps and god knows what and and then think of all the complexity that started to arise in the mortgage market um, with much of which was quite toxic right and so what a lot of this culminated in the end in the credit crisis in 2008 where you had many banks lose very large amounts of money and nearly try to crash the global financial system um, driven by losses on uh, on mortgage-backed types of instruments. Now, the what happened after that took a little while, um, but global regulators and U.S. regulators looked at that episode and recognized, I think at least partly correctly, that much of the underlying cause, or at least of what made the crisis as bad as it was, uh, did come back to banks taking way too much risk in complex derivatives exposures and magnifying the, the, the losses and the leverage in the system there. And so the response with, with Basel III and with Dodd-Frank was to write a set of rules that effectively forced banks to take much less risk, to hold much less inventory, to manage, to evaluate their risk much more precisely and to manage to very tight stress test limits and to implement much stronger risk management across across a, a, the trading portfolios at banks. And what you ended up with, it took a while for all of those regulations to be first written into specific rules and then rolled out across the banking system and implemented. But by 2013 or 2014, you started to see banks have changed their behavior quite dramatically, right? To withdraw from aggressive liquidity provision, to withdraw as aggressive market participants facing hedge funds, facing asset managers, facing pension funds and so forth. And so, but at the same, and so that, that OTC market really started to die. But what you saw in tandem was continued and increasingly rapid growth of derivatives trading and volumes on exchanges in liquid listed products. So things like futures and listed options. So equity index options, for example, in the US, had really parabolic growth from call it 2010 or 2011 all through it, through the to the current time. Single name options grew slower and looked somewhat stagnant for a while until the last couple of years, and now they've really explosively grown and, and caught up to that growth that index options have had. Again, largely driven by this retail investor phenomenon. And so, what you, the situation you have now really is one where you have much wider spread adoption of derivatives products in strategies by retail investors, by family offices, by pension funds, by asset managers, by mutual funds. <clears throat> Most of that exposure is in simpler, transparent exchange traded products that don't have counterparty risk. I think on, on balance, that's probably a good thing. Uh, so we're not generally, it's, it's much less of the these strange exotic OTC derivatives stuff, um, but yeah, you've really had this this large shift in composition along with the the growth and the broadening of these ones. Ben, uh, I just wanted to jump in there if I could. Colgo somehow inadvertently managed to ask one of the only two questions that I had for you, but 
you know, you've covered off the, the question I had was around, I suppose, you know, how you perceive market dynamics to have changed since the GFC, which obviously you've just surmised and answered. The only caveat to that in terms of my question was, do you perceive uh, as a consequence of what you've described uh, to the GFC an increase or perhaps a decrease in, in the amount of potential systemic risks that now exist more broadly in the market? I've got one more question, but I'll, I'll let you get get this one in first and then, and then I'll follow up if I can. Sure, absolutely. So I think on balance, it certainly seems to me that systemic risk has been reduced um, by the regime changes that we've seen over the last 10 years. The sources of systemic risk certainly have changed and there are always, I think, gray areas that are somewhat hard to tell a priori and I'll mention a, a little bit about that. Certainly the, the banking system itself is much, much safer and much less risky. It takes much less risk, holds much smaller positions. You know, you can see just very different events, right? But if you compare the brief periods of extreme market panic around Lehman Brothers failing in late 2008 to March 2020, um, actually most banks were doing... Uh, just fine in March 2020, and, and in many cases, making lots of money on their trading positions. Uh, that was very, very different to, of course, the Lehman Brothers episode, right, where banks were caught offsides on massive amount of risk, and there was, um, you know, massive losses in, in the system, right? Banks um, didn't have the wrong way risk exposures, and if anything, banks had a lot of right way risk exposures and had bought a lot of convexity and managed their stress tests very well. And I think that was super evident. Now. That I think is characteristic, right? Where you know regulators, in some sense, do always—they're usually able to fight the last crisis, okay, <laughs> right? Uh, they can look at what happened in two thousand eight, and they can say, "Look, that was a banking system event," and they can think of ways to try to clean up the banking system. And, and there's no doubt. That, and, and then the key question is, what other major risks are there? You know that they're not thinking about that aren't wasn't the source of risk in the in the last crisis. I, th I think there you really have to think about. Um, in some sense, the shadow financial system, or a lot of the, a lot of the exposures that have built up outside the, the banking system, uh, in in credit, you know, especially, and a lot of the um, off balance sheet type of of exposures that you see. Um, that there's certainly quite a lot of leverage um, there. Yeah. It's, uh, but again, it's. It's not as directly. A lot of it is non-recourse, and a lot of it's not directly connected to the banking to, to banks, and don't cause banks to lose a lot of money. And so that sure. really, when you think about systemic risk, it's really that it, systemic risk isn't just the risk of a bunch of people losing a bunch of money, right? Because that's something that, of course, always happens and happens and always will yeah. happen. Um, it's really that basic of unpredictable. Events. Yeah, exactly. And and the banking system is really key in amplifying those kind of risks. So. I think, yeah. at least from my perspective, I do think that we see uh, meaningfully lower systemic risk in the banking system than we did. At Good. Time. Yeah, I suppose I'm you know inclined to agree with you there. But and you touched on it in in your in your answer to, to the question I just posed. But the, the other question I had, and it's something that I've noticed. I mean, I've I've been doing this a while, and more more recently, probably let's call it in the last couple of years, maybe even three years or so the nature of how the market reacts in terms of repricing on news or data or events 
uh, in general, to my mind, seems to happen far, far more quickly now than it has previously. In your mind, and, and I, I still, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the answer to this is, but in your mind, does that speak to you know, greater liquidity in the market, greater efficacy perhaps of the, the price discovery mechanism that is the market, or, or is it just increased correlations between positioning or, or is it something else? Like It just seems like, you know, even, for example, March of last year, the reprice of, pardon my French, the shit has hit the fan and five minutes later, seemingly, every uh, central bank and government is throwing fiscal and monetary sinks at it. So seven minutes later, we're back on the mend. The reprice has just been, you know, and that, that's obviously a one-off, but generally these reprices seem to be so quick. I mean, what, what in your mind is, do you see it that way? And if so, what, what is it that contributes? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a few different uh, a few different things at play here, but I, from my perspective, I would describe again this this post Dodd Frank, post Basel three implementation world where where banks really are not intermediating markets uh, as as an environment volatility in during quiet periods uh, or during the normal state of affairs might be relatively low, but the the probability of outsized moves. Uh, is is very elevated relative to that, with the reason being markets just gap much faster because we don't have that strong middle market intermediation from banks yeah. uh, where banks step in and warehouse inventory and are taking down customer flow when a lot of customers are selling. Right, We, we see much gappier behavior in markets and liquidity dry up much faster under stress. And so when when aggressive selling starts coming in and liquidity dries up really quickly and big investors are hitting the bid in big size and smashing down through 30 levels of the of the stack in the e-mini futures, you see markets move much, much, much faster um, in both directions, right? Both to the downside and to the upside. And so the I think in the case of March 2020, you know, you saw far worse liquidity in uh, in markets than you did at any time in in, in Q4 uh, 2008 outside of the worst hit parts of the credit market. I mean, if you, if you think back to the time, it was never, you know, despite how crazy the world was in Q4 2008, you could still move tons of equity delta, equity futures, stocks. You could still get out and quote banks and trade options and trade variant swaps with very little difficulty and quite big size. None of those things were true at all in March 2020. So, you know, we we trade like market makers effectively. And so we were trading very big size, but for folks who you know needed to come in and act as, as price takers and needed to move $100 million of stock or $200 million of stock or needed to buy back a short variance swap position, um, those folks were having a tremendous difficulty and were moving markets you know, in, in very outsized ways. And so as a result, again, you had these huge gappy moves. Um, but first, moving all in the same direction, down, 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 and then after uh, after the aggressive policy response, you know, back up, up, up. And, you know, to your point about yeah. the speed of the policy response, I think a lot of that was, you know, you look at 2008 and, and regulators and, and central banks were really just unprepared. Uh, they didn't have the tools. They hadn't thought about the tools. They hadn't thought about uh, systemic market risk and what to do about it. And they had to really learn on the fly um, in 2020. 
they deploy aggressively deployed a lot of the tools that they had put in place to deal with uh, with the credit crisis. And you can argue about all the details, but they were able to move very, very quickly. And then to your point, turn that one-way train down, gapping down on big, on low liquidity to a one-way train up, gapping up on low liquidity. I do. Uh, I, I do often find. G'day, Ben. Thanks for joining us, and and uh, finally get a bit of a chance here, which is all right. Thanks. Uh, good questions there, Ken. I do often find that uh, if I look back, I think that they solved. They being, you know, the the, the Fed and central banks everywhere solved a a health crisis with a financial crisis solution. They were using out of that same toolbox, and I think that maybe that was just their go-to because they knew exactly where it was and they knew where the tools were located. But maybe they. It was just a little bit, probably not not the exact way they wanted to go. But the uh, now, if we're talking about the actual mechanics, sort of my 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 take on it is going to be a little bit more about the actual, you know, sort of sort of what's happening this week. And this podcast gets out pretty quick, so anything that you talk about is going to be fairly relevant with regards to this week. We had a few tremors at the beginning of the, of this week. Um, it seemed like on Monday everything was over, and then on Tuesday everything was recovered. But we've got five companies in the S and P five hundred that represent 16% of the earnings of the 500 and 23% of the market cap. And that's been up as high as 25. The momentum of those mega caps is, is not, there's no secret. Those stats are not, they're not anything new. We've heard that many times. At the same time, a lot of the, a lot of the smaller companies, relatively smaller companies, are, are sort of dragging the chain a bit, being, you know, underneath their, their moving average significant. Does that what are your thoughts on that? Does any of that like really concern you with regards to, to, to what it is that you look like uh, look at day to day from your from your side of things? So just sort of where the, the market is skewed in that in that direction of the big end of town. So that's a great question. So certainly this has been a steady trend, and we have reached historically unusual levels of concentration in the S and P. I think it, it is important to look back at history and place it in context a little bit. I mean, I, th I think people have a bit of a, a picture in their head that like the natural state of affairs when markets are rallying is that, you know, all equities are going up together and, and deviations from that are unusual. You know, if you look back at history, if you take a broad cross section of equities at a point in time, uh, a, a pretty large percentage of them actually underperform or outright fall in value over the next 10 to 20 years, right? That's really the natural state of affairs. And an overall index performance tends to be driven by a subset of companies that do really, really well. And that includes often some new entrants right to the space. Um, that effect has been stronger with this cohort of, of mega caps. Um, but the basic effect isn't the basic phenomenon isn't really that unusual. You don't actually expect long-term, like broad-based growth across lots of companies where everything is going up together. And you know the reason is the world just the world changes, right? Companies mature and companies start underperforming. Um, industries and sectors go away and get replaced by new entrants. Um, the I think the question that the, the really the outstanding question with technology, right, is that. Uh, and, and to some extent, there are some historical parallels. A lot of these companies have become, there are a lot of network effects built into to these markets, right? Uh, where Facebook is more valuable because more people use it and, and it's harder to compete with them when they have a dominant um, position in social media and so forth. And the, the question is, is are those network effects and the monopolistic tendencies in the space kind of going to lock in um, going to lock in the, the market power of these companies and establish 
uh, you know, and, and defeat long-term trends where then they continue to make a lot of money, but they but growth slows down and innovation slows down and dynamism mm-hmm. slows down. And I think we don't really know the answer. Certainly antitrust is... Um, That's the question. Is, is really the question, right? And there has been a lot of talk about that, and there has been a lot of increasing focus on is there a way to, to you know, break up some of the mega cap tech companies. I think there, we're really going to have to see that's going to be a big policy focus over the next couple of years and what the implications are. It may even be an advantage. I still, I still am of the standpoint that that some of the companies you'd want to be holding them if they do got if they do get broken up. Potentially, I would say that that, that Facebook would not be one. If you could get Amazon, sorry, I want to own Amazon when it gets broken up. I want to own Amazon now, but I want to own Amazon when it gets broken up because I'd love to have Amazon Web Services sitting on its own to be to, to be valued on its own and see what happens to that, which would be fantastic. Facebook is not one that I would want to own uh, if it did get broken up because it needs all of the different moving parts. But if you can get rid of uh, uh, if you can get rid of the antitrust stuff, then Facebook would be the absolute screaming outstanding buy on that one. Now uh, that that's me just dwindling on that. So the uh, I wanted to talk about SKU. I've seen a few bits and pieces this week, and just just if if you don't want to answer it, if you don't have anything on your on your radar, but are you seeing that the that the vol smile means that it's 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 actually quite cheap? And we like I said at the beginning of the week we saw a bit of a you know a bit of a tremor that was there. And uh, do, do you see that it might be cheap enough to be able to start buying some protection and make it worthwhile, or even grab some upside? I, I don't know if you see anything in the skew, uh, or even if you wanted to explain skew. Sorry. Sure. So so skew refers to the the slope of implied volatility as a function of the strike price of the option that you're buying. So typically when people say, oh, skew is relatively high, what they usually would mean is that those deep out of the money puts trade at a relatively higher premium in implied volatility terms to the upside calls or to the at the money. There's a lot of, it gets nuanced because there's a lot of different ways to measure skew. You know, do you mean, uh, do you take, strikes in delta terms and do you divide there's lots of little details and people can kind of make the points that they want to make by by constructing the data in the way that they want to make it and i think that what i would my, the, the point that i would usually make here is that if you are a um if you are an, a, an equity investor not a derivative specialist and not an arbitrageur um, most of the time you shouldn't care too much about skew um certainly on its own So, for example, a lot of people over the last month were saying things like, wow, skew is is really high in equities. They must be really buying a lot of tail risk or something. And when I think that was a very misleading notion, right? Because when you look at um, you look at, for example, the price of those one month out of the money puts like a 20 delta put. I think when we were talking about this a few weeks ago, the implied volatility on an S&P one month 20 delta put at the time was like 12% and the premium was really low. And that doesn't, that's not people afraid of anything, right? The difference is just, well, if the at the money ball is real is, is eight and the one month 20 delta call ball is five, then that 12 is kind of, you know, it's higher than those two numbers, but these are all very low numbers, right? And it just reflects, it, it's very small premium. It just reflects the fact that I think investors correctly note that, look, even if things have been really quiet, 
you shouldn't sell a one month 2% out of the money put for free, right? That's crazy because of course the market can go down more than 2%. Just on Monday, it went down 2 point something percent before it rallied yeah. back a little bit, right? So that's you correct. Have, you would have freaked up. It's, yeah, it's, it's the old expression of picking up pennies in front of the steam train and that, uh, whatever, the, whatever the, the saying is in that one. Yeah, exactly. So um, the I think skew in of itself, again, it's sort of a nuanced difference between prices of upside versus at the money versus downside. And it, it's really not something that I think is easy to, it doesn't tell you what you should do or, or doesn't tell you what the world looks like. Um, if anything, it, you know, maybe it said that those upside calls were really being given away. And, you know, and that's true to some extent. There's a lot of price insensitive sellers of, of, of short-term options, but especially of upside calls. People love doing call overwriting uh, when I think a lot of the time they really shouldn't. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, tracking that makes a lot of sense. In this in this time as well, sort of, uh, selling calls, if you want to sort of take it out to the macro landscape, historically when inflation when inflation does pop, and this is a beautiful lead-in, and we're going to watch Paul is, is, is going to cut in now because I'm giving him a beautiful segue, the, uh, the, in times of inflationary, huge inflationary pops, you do have a tendency to see markets go sideways. So in, this, in, a, in a sideways trending market, you know, selling slightly out-of-the-money calls might not be the worst possible thing that, uh, that you could do, but make sure that you're getting the right premium, I suppose, but I'm not... I'm not, I'm not about to question the PhD on this one. On that one. So, but Paul, mate, did you want to have a chat about some uh, the big, uh, the big I, I, uh, the big I word, mate? Yeah. Well, um, I suppose um, this season of the BIP show, we um, we we started off just talking like we did like two or three shows about inflation, uh, and now we're just doing the uh, basically the transitory, not transitory game. Uh, with all of our guests, just a really short little thing, you know, which which uh, which side of the fence do you um, do do you sit on uh, here, Ben? And uh, including, you know, just looking at the U.S. data, which you know, global uh, global markets are looking at that U.S. data very closely, obviously. But you're on the ground there too, right? So there's the data you see, but then there's what you see in your day to day life. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that first of all, we're not, you know. We'll only really know the answer in, in a few years, but I think that where I sit now, I, I certainly fall more into the transitory camp. I mean, I think that, you know, the pandemic was a pretty unique period in history, right? We, we shut down economies, we created a ton of excess capacity, and then we started to shutter a lot of that capacity to cut costs because we didn't know when it was going to be over, right? Um, you saw prices fall a ton. Um, and I'll have a lot of deflation, especially for like expensive, durable goods like used cars, because if, if there's a bunch of uncertainty out there, you lost your job, you're just not going to go buy a new car or buy a used car. You're going to keep your old beater for another year and you know see, see how things go. Right. And so you saw, you know, I bought a I bought a couple year old um, minivan to drive the kids around, you know, at a huge discount in, in the middle of 2020. And, you know, we built up. So we built up a ton of pent up latent demand for durables. Uh, we also built up a ton of latent demand for services like restaurants and hotels and travel and all that kind of stuff we didn't get to do, right? Because we were stuck at home. And then we started to release that stuff all at once as, as vaccines started to roll out. And now there's huge bottlenecks in, uh, in a lot of those areas. Um, you know, you've also had some of the areas like that, that where demand actually got channeled into during the pandemic things like you know people couldn't go out to bars and restaurants but they could shop online on amazon right and so the kind of um buying consumer goods 
that get shipped from China, you know, went through the roof. And so you had all these global supply chain bottlenecks and everything got screwed up and delivery cycles went really long and prices started to rise. So I think that there's just, there's a lot of those dynamics in the system um, that all, again, are, are very, are transitory dynamics. Um, whether you are starting to see wages rise now and that could create longer term price pressures. But I think that I think the baseline is really, again, these are very extraordinary uh, circumstances that that I think most likely will work themselves out over the next year. Yeah, they'll balance out. Um, and can I just ask you, we're going we're gonna to wrap up, but um, what it's like, what's it like in San Francisco over here? Uh, um, and I'm sure in Europe, too, they get the same kind of news. But, um, you know, we hear all this stuff about tech companies, you know, uh, sending their... Um, uh, t- sending all of their staff to, you know, to to the f- far corners of the Midwest and um and moving their headquarters to Austin, um. But um, what's it like uh, there in the city at the moment? Yeah, I would say that the so most of the residential neighborhoods are very much back and feel much more normal. So you, you know, Noe Valley or the Castro or the Mission, um, everybody's out having brunch and doing the usual stuff. Uh, downtown, the financial district is still very quiet. I think it's really lagged some of the other major cities in the U.S. So think of like New York. Um, most businesses, I think, haven't reopened in, San- in in the financial district. We have our offices right there on the Embarcadero. Um, and it's open, but there's very few people in the office building. And so we do see that lag. I mean, you did see some major tech companies uh, give up their leases on big space in, in, uh, in SOMA. Now, we'll see how all that plays out. There's definitely been an exodus out of San Francisco into the surrounding suburbs. And then there's been some exodus from the suburbs or from San Francisco out to more outlying areas to Tahoe. I mean, a ton of a ton of, of tech workers actually moved to Tahoe because it's a beautiful spot in the mountains and it's the summer and they're up there and it's great. And you saw huge price growth in, in real estate and, and rents in Tahoe. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that trajectory works. Um, certainly... We have seen this, again, very major lag in, in downtown financial district business activity, I think, relative to other comparable major cities in the United States. And I think that is uh, at least in part driven by, uh, by tech having uh, moved more in the direction of remote than, uh, than, for example, big banks in New York have. Yeah, look, it's certainly going to be a really interesting time, it's going to be a really interesting future for San Francisco. And as all of this starts to open back up again. I know one thing is uh, uh, eventually looking forward to getting back there to that beautiful city, uh, having a walk around, um, around where your office is. Uh, it's it's beautiful, um, beautiful part of the world. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get to enjoy it uh, once again. Um, but uh, uh, Ben Eifert um, from QVR Advisors, um, uh, thank you so much for making the time to come on the BIP show um, uh, and chat to us. Hey, guys, it was really fun. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. This episode of the BIP Show has been brought to you by Brookside Energy, one of the most exciting, sustainable growth oil and gas companies listed on the ASX for investors wanting exposure to rising oil and gas prices. The stock code is BRK. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The BIP Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The BIP Show. 
Uh, James has a website which is now hosting all the extras we can't get to on the show, including a few trades and positions folks might want to have a look at uh, based on the chat here today. Just Google Wheel and Capital, follow the links to the BIP show. Um, we're all on Twitter individually too. It's at Colgo, at James Wheelan42, at Ken Vexler. Uh, and you can find Ben, uh, who uh, is a really big personality on Twitter, um, really fun uh, uh, and very interesting uh, person on, uh, guy on Twitter. Um, it's at Dr. Ben with two ends pi for it um on, on twitter you can look them up there and um and follow along uh ben once again thanks very much for coming on the show right on guys yeah james it's been great mate fantastic it's past my bedtime though my uh, my night and night tea is all run out and uh, and it's time for me to tuck in uh, the uh, the u.s market is just opening though so i'm probably going to be up for another few hours yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a tough time zone for trading man it sure is mate <laughs> and um yeah, yeah. I, I like, it's funny people i guess you get used to anything but people are always like, oh my god you must wake up early on the west coast it's good hours whatever you get up at, you know, get up at five do some stuff markets closed at one go for a bike ride it's like the yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, fantastic um and i think ken's had to go um because he's got to get a COVID test um uh it's um yeah in, in netherlands uh things are not good so uh he's just trying to make sure that he's on top of everything it's all right it's all right i'm fine i don't i don't there's, there's nothing wrong with me it's just that <laughs> if i ever want to leave the three block radius that i've lived in in the last 18 months I need to make sure that i can confirm that i'm all right yeah. anyway ben it's been a pleasure really appreciate your time Lads, great as always, but yeah, I do have to jump this time, actually. Very good, guys. Cheers. Have a good one. It was Thanks great. very much. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.